This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. All right, so welcome everybody. Welcome all our Torah Anytime viewers. Tonight we are continuing on the, on the series on divinity. The, today's topic is, is a very, very important topic that not a lot of people touch upon. And that is a, a very common thing that I get when I speak to people is, why do we need religion? Let me just be a good person and forget about everything else. Why do we need to go and have all these laws and these you know rituals that we have to do? Just be a good person and that's it. And that's good, and that's good enough with that. So the question is, is it possible to be a good person without being religious? And that's what we're going to try to, to uncover today. And we're going to go through many, many examples and many different understandings of, of morality and um, ethics to try to to uh, um, understand this idea and how also to particularly to answer people who um, come with those type of, of questions and inquiries. So to begin, we'll ask with a question, a very, very famous question that is very, very difficult for most people to answer. What is worse? Is it worse to be an atheist or is it worse to serve idols? So when you ask this, people are like, well, you know, it usually throws them off guard because at one point, so you have serving idols, it's going against maybe the Ten Commandments, of course, it's for sure going against the Ten Commandments, but atheism is at least you're not, you're nothing doing that. So Rabbi Victor Miller goes and answers it, and he says that atheism is worse. Why is atheism worse? Because if you're serving idolatry, so you're serving something wrong, but at least you believe in a concept of right and wrong. It may be an incorrect concept of what is right and wrong, but at least you believe in idea and ideology that there's something right and something wrong that you can do. Atheism, it's all based on your will and whim, or morality as a society, or however you're going to deal with it, we're going to uh, soon see. So, Robert Victor Miller says that atheism is uh, is worse th- because of that. The uh, we, we spoke about recently, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? So one of the questions that we asked upon that is, who says you're a good person? Who told you you're a good person? And many people say, no, I'm, I'm a good person, but I don't believe in God. Or I'm a good person and I'm not religious. So I usually respond with a very um, uncomfortable question. Be like, please do share. Like, who told you you're a good person? Like, what makes you a good person? So they're like, well, but usually it's always what they don't do. I don't murder anybody. I don't, uh, you know, usually I don't murder. I don't kill anybody. Um, I, you know? It's a lot about murdering for some reason. And people think that as long as you don't murder, you're a good person for some reason. I don't steal. I don't, uh, you know, I don't commit fraud. I don't do anything bad. So I respond to that. Doing, not doing bad does not mean that you are good. That does, just means that you're not a bad person. But what makes you do something, what makes you do something, uh, that you consider good? And in fact, if you ask many people this, and this is unfortunate, even if you ask religious people, are you a good person? Yeah, I'm a pretty good person. What was the last thing good that you did? Not like, you know, like, okay, so I woke up and I did. Like, what is the last thing good that you did for somebody else? What was the last time you gave someone charity? When was the last time you smiled at somebody that you wanted to just spit in their face? When was the last time that you went and you gave, you went out of your way, someone was collecting charity, and you know what, instead of just giving him a, a dollar, you're like, you know what, you're probably cold, let me go make you a cup of coffee. And you give him a cup of coffee. When, and, and if you, if you stop to think about it a second, you're like, wait a minute, am I a good person? At what, at what have I done? So, the you know the idea to understand is what classifies you as a good person. If you're looking at through the the secular world of doing for others, or you're looking at the religious world, which is doing for others and doing uh, what you are bound to do based on the moral obligations of your religion, and of course we're talking about the Torah. So thousands of years ago, it was considered a great act to sacrifice your child to idolatry. Uh, so the question is, back then, does that make that a good act? I mean, it was considered like, that's like unbelievable. You just did one of the greatest things. Is that a good act? Well, back then, maybe. But now, it's a terrible thing. That's, that's like completely, uh, you know, murder. But then at the same point today, 
if you go and you commit an abortion, and a, you know, very liberal, is that a problem according to the most liberal mind? No, that's not a problem at all. But if you kill the baby after it comes out of the, uh, you know, out of the womb, that's murder. So who was the one, if you don't believe in religion, and if you don't believe in a, in a, in a higher authority, a higher power, who was the one that decided while the baby's inside, the abortion is okay. After it comes out, that's when it classifies is that murder. Why is it that 2,000 years ago, or 3,000 years ago, giving your child to idolatry for, you know, sacrifice is good? Now it's considered bad. And in fact, we don't even have to go 2,000 years. You can even go to nowadays and age. Let's say there's a certain, you know, far eastern, you know, civilization that practice cannibalism. Oh, they think it's a good source of protein, and they practice cannibalism. And you're, you know, in the West, you're like, well, that's ridiculous. That's so, so, how can you do such a thing? That's terrible. That's murder. It's murder for you, but it's good for them. Who are you to decide what they could do or what they Just be what? Because you speak more influential English? <laughs> you know, you, you, are, you, you, you have maybe you make more per capita? Like, what makes you better? What makes you decide what is right and what is wrong? And people, when, and many atheists of people, they have their ideas. I'm like, you ask, they, they all ask, okay, I, I'll just be a good person. Is it a good person to do something that they do in a far civilization? No, that's a terrible thing. And then I ask them, is it something good that you do? Uh, completely different, and they say yes. I'm like, so who's the one that decided that is bad and that is good? Based on you, who are you? Who are you to decide that somebody else is doing something bad? You look at the, not too long ago, uh, children were considered very, very imperative for the workforce, workforce, especially if a family had a farm. And in the farm, they wanted to, uh, you know, have more workers. An easy way would get uh, free child labor, you know? Produce more kids, they help in the field. Is that a bad thing? Back then it was great. What do you mean? The more kids you have, the more you work. Now, that's child labor. Why? Maybe it's unhealthy, unsanitary. So let's say you make it sanitary. You make it healthy. You give them breaks. You're right, and you give them, you know, they have PTO days. You know, they could go out to play during their break. Whatever it is, you make it as healthy. Is that all of a sudden make it better? What is back then? It wasn't good. Now it is all of a sudden. It is good. There are certain communities in the world nowadays. Um, they tend to wear longer robes, the men, and they treat their women as slaves and their wives, the women, the slaves. And, um, you know, you look at the the Western civilization. They're like, that's ridiculous. That's you know, abuse, abuse of women. Who made you decide what that is abuse and what's not? In fact, they look at you as imbeciles, and you look at them as, you know, like ancient people from the, from the ancient, uh, ancient time. There was, it reminds me, I once uh, saw a clip of uh, some sort of interviewer, either, someone who's English speaking, so, you know, wearing pants. Uh, you know, someone either from Australia, England, or America, uh, I, one of those. And he was interviewing a, Islamic person who had like a bunch of children like running around and you know he's wearing like a whole white robe with a you know a white kippah and he's sitting over there and he's like um he's as he's interviewing he's like he's like who are, who are all these you know you have a school over here he's like no this is my children so he says all, all these are your children he's like yeah yeah so he's like how many children do you have he's like ah oh, 70 71 72 he's like you have 72 children he's like yeah he's like he's like why how many children do you have he says, you know, I got two. I mean, uh, and one dog. I was like, two, you know? So he's like, he's like, you have two children? So, so the guy, the, the reporter asked him back, he's like, how many wives do you have for 72 children? So he says, I have 18 wives. He's like, you have 18 wives? And this, you know, they're both so shocked at each other. They're both like, what? You only have two? You only have one wife? You only have eight? You know, what's going on? And then he goes back and he says, so the, the, the Islamic guy says, how many wives do you have? He says, I, I just have one. He's like, you have, you have one wife? He's like laughing in like Arabic. He's like, you know, it's like only one wife. Can you believe that? And you, and over here, we look at them as crazy. What is that? 18 wives? You can't make one woman happy here. How are you going to make 18 women happy? Well, if you hit them, maybe, you know, maybe that's the secret. Just kidding. Do not take that at home. Um, so you have, you have, at one point, you have 
the, um, the ideology of the Western, thinking that they're right. Then you have the ideology of, the, let's say, the far you know, Eastern, thinking that they're right. And then we're both saying this is right and this is right. Who are you to decide? If you don't believe in a higher power, if you don't believe that there's a God, there's an authority that tells you what's right and what's wrong, who are you to decide? This in um, modern day language is known as something called moral relativism. The moral relativism is something that nobody is objectively right or wrong, and we have to tolerate the behavior of other people. Because everything is matters of opinion. This person thinks that this is right, and we have to respect your opinion. Right? This is a nowadays age. We have to respect everyone's opinion. We have to... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, tolerant. To, besides tolerance, we have to validate also. Not only do we have to respect, we have to validate that, that opinion. I understand. You know, like, it's, it's, if something's right, then something's right. If something's wrong, then something's wrong. But if you don't believe of a higher power, then everything is, is relative. And everything's relative to everybody else. The problem with this is is that there's something called rationalization. And when you rationalize, then everything is on the table. So if you decide, let's say something is wrong. So you won't do it until you decide it's right. So for example, nobody's going to steal because stealing is bad. But let's say someone comes to you and says, listen, this is a really large corporation. They already know people are going to do this scam. They already know people are going to call in and say, yeah, I lost it, I need insurance, you know, that whole scheme. Is it really stealing? They already know, they put it in together... So all of a sudden, now, when it's only based on your knowledge, okay, now it's not really stealing so much, because it's insurance fraud, and they really know, and it's not really stealing, and la 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 and eventually you decide you do whatever you want. Once you rationalize, things are, things are only wrong only until you decide that it is, uh, that it is right. So if you don't believe in God, then who decides for you what is wrong and what is right? So you can follow a moral code. Whose moral code do you follow? You can follow your own moral code. Or at the same point in time, you can follow Hitler's moral code. Or maybe the Islamic moral code. And in fact, what makes your moral code any better than their moral code if they are both decided the same way that, the way that you decided uh, yours? You could say that maybe it's a numbers game. The more that you have a, a larger population of people, you all collaborate together and say, this is the moral, you know, the moral uh, society's uh, laws, this is what we have to follow by, and this is what we have to go by. So according to that, you know, you know, to that understanding, if you lived, you know, whatever, if you live even in a society today that sacrifices children to, you know, some sort of idol, and everybody does it, then it's morally okay. And if you don't, then it's not morally okay. This is a very, very flawed understanding. This is a very flawed concept of having morality just based on off numbers, because it could be a bunch of crazy people. And if there are a bunch of crazy people deciding one thing, so then everybody's going to do the same, the same crazy thing. Uh, evolutionary biologists, um, every time I say evolutionary biologists, I heart, you know, it goes up, the blood pressure. It's, 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 I don't understand. I really do not understand the thought process that goes on behind this. You know what they, how they understand morality? Morality is understood by a, um, it, basically evolution. It sort of evolved. The morality evolved over time. We don't commit incest because it just evolved over time. That is something, so, so what, in, in essence, what they're doing is really um, putting our moral choices, and let's even make it simpler, we are animals. According to evolutionary biologies, we are just sophisticated animals. And in fact, in 2005, the London Zoo, was, and by the way, if um, the majority of this uh, of this class was taken from two main sources, if anybody wants to read more into it, I'm not quoting each source, but the, their majority is either from Rabbi Lawrence Kalman from Permission to Believe or Rabbi Yitzhak Finger Search of Judaism. These two have speak a, a more in depth than I've seen in other in other books regarding this uh, this morality uh, dilemma of how to understand ethics. So. If you do want to read more on these, or you do want to look at the sources, they are these mostly very, very heavily taken from these two from these two books. So, the in August 
2005, the London Zoo, they made a new exhibit, a new exhibit in the zoo, and this was where they had eight candidates, a chemist was one of them, that they put it, that they put them inside a cage, these human beings, and the exhibit read, warning, these are humans in their natural environment, right? I could only, I could only imagine, you know, there was, this is years ago, it's for sure not in existence anymore, there was a guy from like Australia, I was like, oh crikey, you know, come here, you know, let me put my head in this snake and see how it bites my head off. Um, so, I could just imagine him narrating, you know, what's going on with a bunch of humans. It was 2005, so now it would be different. Now you would just see a bunch of people on the couch, you know, texting, you know, taking selfies every 30 seconds for the new filters or whatever it is that people do nowadays. And, uh, but you had over there, eight human beings in a cage, in a zoo, human exhibit. This is where, and, and you know what? And people were like, wow, unbelievable. This is, this is, you know, look how far we advance in society. You know, and, and what it, they, they, they go, the participants, the, you know what one participant said? He says, this reminds us that we're not that special. We're just like the other animals. I'm like, speak for yourself. All right. I do not consider myself as like one of those animals. I'm sorry. Now you want to consider yourself one of those animals? Maybe, yeah, you know, if you're already willing to go that far, I don't know. But, we are not an animal. We are a, we have a soul, we have a neshama, we, we are a completely different being. But if you believe that you're an animal, then you can act like an animal. And what's the problem? And if you think you're an animal and you act like an animal, who gives you the authority to tell me what is right and what is wrong? Who decides for you to tell you that this is, this is wrong and this is right? This person wants to commit abortion, this person does not want to commit abortion. Who are you to say this is right and this is wrong? If you believe in yourself, or whatever else, anything else that you come based on your opinion, it means absolutely nothing, because who cares about you? Who cares? It doesn't matter. You don't have a say in these things. So, when you look at the ancient e- Egyptians, they um, enslaved humans, they tortured humans, they brutally murdered humans. And at the same point in time, they worshipped animals. You have the ancient Egyptians, when we were in, uh, slaves in, in Mitzrayim, they, they worshipped the bull, the crocodile, the cat, the cobra, the hippopotamus, and of course, the sheep. And at the same point in time, they were able to murder, you know, these were gods, but humans, who cares about the humans? It didn't, it didn't matter at all. You have the Nazis, for example, the Nazis, um, when, when Hitler, you know, you know, Hitler was a vegetarian. Hitler was a, he was also a painter. I've got to be one, I don't know what, like, what, like, trying to paint a picture and be like, you know what, that's it. (laughs) You know, the, the Jews, they sold me these acrylic paints and, uh. I, I really, you know, like how a vegetarian painter became mass murdering, um, uh, you know, this is why you cannot trust anybody, <laughs> no matter how nice they see. Okay, no, you can trust people. So, um, he goes, and he murders millions and millions of people. But at the same point in time, they were very, you know, like big into animals. They're like, but now the Jews are getting brutally murdered. What's going to be with all the animals? They have pets. What's going to be? So they opened humane societies. Like, we got to save the pets. And they went... The, you know, put the, put the human beings in cattle cars, you know, gas them, kill them, brutally murder them. Who cares about that? But the pets? No, that's what we gotta go. That's what we gotta take uh, care of. And there are some people that hold human animal life on a higher level than human life. And they say, if you have to save one, what are you gonna save? Yeah, sorry, I didn't, I didn't want to hear what some of these people would, would answer. The, you know, so, science recently uh, revealed that chimpanzees have a very, very close genetic makeup similar to humans. Like 99.4%. Like really, really close. So, and they say, you know, like te- technically, what do we do different animals? We eat, we sleep. Okay, so we get dry. We do a little bit more advanced, but technically, the whole life system, it's the same form. It's everything, everything is the same formality. So until a certain point, they're like, okay, well, humans are able to use tools. We're able to use tools, we're more advanced, and hence we're higher. But then they found that 
there was uh, woodpeckers and chimpanzees that they also used tools. Either they they make they, they to soak up the wet things, or they use like twigs to get ants out out of out of like holes. So they also use tools. So they said, you know what's different about humans? They have language. But then you had you had um, chimpanzees and gorillas that learned sign language. And then also you had that, you had dolphins and whales that also have a very complex language on their own. So what makes us different than an animals, according to the science world? And in fact, if you actually think about it, we're inferior to animals. So how many animals can you actually outrun? How many, how, how many fish, can, fish can you actually outswim? The, um, you know, how many animals are you actually stronger, stronger than with? If you, the sight of an eagle, the smelling, the olfactory senses of a dog compared to a human is nothing. Is is absolutely nothing. So we're we're nothing compared to to animals. In fact, in fact, we're we're less. So if you're considered that we were an animal and we're nothing better, and all based on morality is just based on evolution, then nothing is right and nothing is wrong. It's all based on whatever understanding that you decided you want, and no one cares about what you decide. If there is no higher power, there is no other form of deciding of a deciding factor saying that this is correct and this is not correct. Let us look. At something called murder. Now, we all know, let's just start, murder is bad. Murder should stay away from. We don't do murder. But who was the authority to establish that murder is wrong? What? Let's say someone sees you do something really bad. And if that person finds out, if that person goes and snitches to the police, you know, that's it. Your, your life is over. So then is murder bad? Well, if you're living in your own mind and you're saying, I decide murder is bad. So murder is bad until you rationalize that murder is good. Now, obviously, this is a very, very extreme case. Let's look at a different example. The mafia, right? So you go to the, to the mafia. Someone messes with the family. Right? What happened if somebody messes with the family? We get Tony out there, put a little silencer, and takes care of him. Now, according to the mafia, that they take care of people, is that a bad thing in their eyes? No, they're pr- the protecting of the family. It's the highest, uh, you know, honor that you can give. You get a good car afterwards. I don't know what, I don't know, you, you eat hot dogs. Well, I don't know what mafia is, whatever. Spaghetti meatballs, I don't know. So, um... While getting some good wine or alcohol with a cigar, and and you celebrate why? Because you you go you defended the family. Let's uh, look at uh, you know a different uh, a different example. You go to um, you know Mahmoud Abdul Mustafa, and you ask him from the Palestinian Authority, is it uh, is it right to murder? So it depends who um, innocent Jewish men, women, and children. So <laughs> but this is the high, the Shahid. This is the highest level of heaven that you could get to. If you murder these people. Forget about it. The more the merrier. The, the, you know, the higher you're going to go in heaven. So here, you have murder from one angle is a very bad thing from, let's say, most humans. And then you have people from a little bit of a twisted mentality. You go from people from, from a certain Islamic extremist you know, understanding. It's the highest thing that you can do. So what makes murder right and what makes murder wrong? For one person, murder is terrible. You would never murder anybody. Even if someone did the worst thing, you would never murder that person. For another person... The person could be an innocent baby. You murder that person. That's the highest level of, of, of heaven that you could get to. So you could see, when you're not dealing with a, with a standard authority from something from a higher power, something like a, a godlike power, then morality is almost meaningless. It's almost just as what a society together decides what is right and what is wrong. You have... Um, the Spanish conquistadors, when they came to Mexico City, they found the Aztecs that they were um, practicing human sacrifice. And they were like, you crazy human sacrifice? That is unbelievable. How immoral, how disgusting, how depraving, how low can a society go that they can practice human sacrifice? Unbelievable. At the same point in time, the, you know, the Spanish Inquisition, they would go and they would burn heretics on the stage, you know, if they didn't believe in their God. So at one point in time, from your perspective, you see somebody else 
who's, who's sacrificing to an idol, a live sacrifice, a human sacrifice, that's bad. But when you murder somebody because they don't believe in your religion, that's okay. That's, that's a higher level. So you see how twisted it could be if you don't have a higher power. Now, if you realize, every time someone dies and another person is born, society changes just a little bit. In fact, you look at what was right 2,000 years ago, it's no longer right now. What was right 4,000 years ago is definitely no longer right right now. Now, if what, you, and now imagine you're thinking, what about 100 years? What about 150 years from now? What about if what is right right now, they're going to look about 150 years ago and be like, you guys were so crazy. Assuming you lived 150 years, right? Or you have a time machine or whatever it is, right? They'll be like, you are so, how did you, were you able to, of course, Mashiach is going to be there, so you'll be able to, uh, okay, whatever, we're going off topic. So, um, but the idea is, is like, time changes. If time changes, then morality doesn't stand. If morality doesn't stand, then how do you know what is right and what is good? This is a very, very serious question. People want to be good people. Everybody deep inside wants to be, most people deep inside, Many people deep inside, right? A few people want to do good. I don't know. Let's almost everybody. They people want to do good. People do inherently. They do want to do good. Who says you're doing something good? Whose basis on because you because you feel good that you did that? Is that what makes? Is that what judges your feeling? Like, oh, I felt like I did something good now, and now I know that it, that it's uh, that it's a good thing. So you have um, an idea that you could say, well, maybe education. Maybe the highly educated people they're the ones who could tell us who is good and who is uh, who is bad. Well. The Holocaust went and proved this very, very false. Because Germany was considered the most scientific, culturally, and philosophically advanced society at that time. Yet, they did not have a problem to murder, brutally murder, innocent, millions of innocent men, women, and children that are harmless without any, you know, anything to, to, you know, to defend themselves with. So, and even more, even more so than that. So first of all, education is already out of the picture. You can't say education because look what education did to, to many people. Um, you have, you know, even when, you, when you're dealing about the Holocaust, and we spoke about it, uh, I think last week or two weeks ago, that the question is asked that, um, you know, Hitler was, you know, brutally murdering so many people. How come other people didn't go and, you know, go to war against Germany for what they were doing to, to these innocent people. Nobody, nobody did. Um, unless they were affected by it and they, and they had to go to, to war against it. So people, you know, the, stor- the historians would answer, well, maybe they were afraid. They didn't want to, you know, Germany had a very powerful army. They didn't want to go mess with them. Excuse me. So then the question is, what about after the war? After the war, how come people didn't go? There was something called the Nuremberg Trials, where people, you know how many percent of the, of the nations of the world, um, joined the Nuremberg trials, 20%, which means 80% of the nations of the world did not want anything to do with the Nuremberg trials. If murder was wrong, be, you know, in Second World War, between 1939 till 1946, then how come nobody stepped up afterwards and said, hey, that's bad, what you did was bad, and we're standing up here to, to go fight against it. Nobody. 20%, 20%, only the ones that, that stood up for that. So if, if, if murder was wrong then, then is it wrong now? Like, why, why you, and now we have the whole thing with Poland. I, I'm not following with it. With the, you know, you can't say Holocaust, whatever it is. You know, the, you know there's something with the, the, with the scientific books over there that they're doing. Who are you to decide and change history because you feel uncomfortable? And again, I may be, I, I, didn't, I didn't read up enough about it to, to, to go and talk about it. But the, the, if murder is wrong, murder is wrong forever. You cannot hide from things that, that, that happen. The... You know, people, and especially if you're dealing by the evolutionary logic that everything is, you know, happened through through thing through uh, um, through evolution, especially your moral, you know, ideology, then you look at the animal world. Animal world kills. Do you go to a cheetah that kills a you know gazelle and be like, um, you're gonna be sentenced for like you know 
12 to 15, but maybe it'll let you out with good behavior. No, like, that's like good cheetah. You know, you did good. You know, you, you like, that was awesome. That, that swipe and the bite, that was great. That was a great combo. You know, you got like 50 points. That's unbelievable. You don't think of the cheetah anything bad because that's its nature. So why is it, if let's say somebody has that animalistic murder right nature, you know, he murdered, he sliced so nicely. You know, like, why, why is it, who are you to decide that something is right and something is wrong? That, is this become, it has to be very, very clear of how, how we're, we're, we're continuing going on the same examples to show you that no matter how different angle you understand it, there is no way to be morally and ethically correct unless you go based off a higher power. There was a, um, I want to take you through a very interesting experiment. And this was done by a Yale professor by the name of Stanley Milgram. And it's a shame. I wish I would be able to show you the actual experiment. The, not do it, but show you the, the, the actual, and soon you'll see why. So, what this person did, and I have, to, I have to paint you this picture, so bear with me for a minute. There was um, this psycholo- psychology professor that he went, has anybody ever heard about this, the Milgram experiment? You heard about it? Okay, so there's basically two rooms. In one room, there was a bunch of people that volunteered for this experiment, and what they would do is, their job is, is they're going to ask questions to another, what they thought it was a contestant, but really that other person was an actor, another contestant, and based on the questions, if they get it right, they move on to the next question. If they get it wrong, they're going to get electric shock, they're going to get, they're, they're strapped on with, and they're going to get shocked, and then they're going to go on to the next thing. The, the, the way that the, the professor went and explained this, it says that there's a way of learning by negative reinforcement. Well, if you punish somebody, they're going to get the next answer right. So the idea was, let's punish them when they get something wrong, so the next time they'll get it right. And that was the, the idea uh, behind it. So, but this was really rigged. Well, it was rigged because this, the electric, the electric uh, uh, pads were never hooked up to anybody else. It was in a different room, and you were able to hear the person, had the, and you, you know, through this like microphone system, and the way that you know if the person was saying the right answer or wrong answer, they had a light answer, or they had lights, one, two, three, and four. And the answer is you, you ask the question, if they, you know, and you have the answer, let's say circle there was two, if number two was on, and you know they got it right. If it's anything else than two, you get the wrong you get the wrong answer. And what they had to do, they had a bunch of switches all in front of them, uh, ranging from like 15 volts to like 450 volts. 450 volts is like danger. Like like that's like you know very very dangerous. So what they do is every time they get something wrong, they tell them, okay, you're getting 15 volts now, and you give them the volt shock, and you know they get the shock. And then the next time you get something wrong, it goes up. You go to next, you know, 25, 45, whatever, however the in the increments that they have it. So the contestants that, that came over here, so the contestants were really the people that were asking the questions, because they didn't know that nobody's actually getting shocked on the other side. They actually thought someone's getting shocked. And they were people anywhere from high school dropouts to doctorate degrees. Right? Some really advanced, um, you know, people over there. And what they did was, is that they had these actors. So in the beginning, you know, they did, okay, you know, you got the third answer, one, four answer, 50 volt shock. And they trying to be, oh, you know, like the guy, the, the actor would be like, oh, ow, that, that hurt. And, uh, you know, the guy's like a little shocked. And you actually see this. And as he goes on, eventually he gets to a certain point. The actor obviously says the wrong answer. They get to the, to the wrong to a certain point where it gets like dangerous, and then the actor starts screaming. The actor, which they don't know, is the actor starts screaming, "Help! Help! Get me out of here! Get me out of here! I don't want to do this anymore." So the guy's like, the guy wants to leave. You know, he goes to the guy who's leading the experiment. The guy who's leading the experiment says, "And it's imperative on the experiment that we must continue the experiment until the end." He says, "But the guy's hurt. You know, the guy's screaming. He's yelling in pain. He's he, maybe he wants to come out." He's like, "Can someone go check on him?" He says, "Don't worry about it." You know, it's my responsibility. You know, go on with the experiment. The experiment. And the, every time that they stop, as long as they heard, it's I've, I have the responsibility. Don't worry, just continue. Most of them kept on going, and they kept on going, and many of them went till the end, till the end. And eventually, even some of them, 
they were giving 450 volt shocks. You didn't hear anything anymore. He's like, the guy could be dead in there. He's like, he's like, what am I supposed to do? He says, if they don't answer within four to five seconds, it's considered a wrong answer, shock them. He says, I'm not shocking them. He says, uh, he says, what happens if something happened to him? So the, the, the conductor over there says, don't worry about it, it's on me. He says, it's on you? He says, it's on you. So, okay, fine. It's on you. And then, <laughs> then I go and I shock them. And he goes, they went and they, and they, and they, and they shocked them. And, uh, the, out of all the experiment, all the people experiment, so uh, thirty-five percent after a certain point refused to continue. They're like, "No, that's it. I'm done." Thirty-five percent, thirty-five percent after a certain point said, "No." Sixty-five percent went as far as to as to as to hit the, the thing that says danger, high voltage. They went as far as that, but one hundred percent of them all hit the first one. Every single one went hit the first one, gave the first shot. Now, this was the experiment that if we were to understand it from a different, a little bit of a different angle. If those contestants inside believed in absolute morality, that you're not allowed to harm any other human being for no, for, for no particular reason, you're not allowed to do it, the, when they say the first lover, you gotta shock and be like, oh, I'm sorry, it's against my religion, I can't shock, I can't hurt somebody for no apparent reason. So you can do it. But these people, you know, whatever it was, the reason that they decided it was okay, because that person said it was okay, so everything was fine. So when we see when we're dealing, when your own, you know, Morality is based on your own decision making, so then you can decide what is right and what is wrong, and then you're okay with it, and you're fine, and you don't have a problem. The other guy is taking responsibility, I'm fine, I don't have to deal with it. That, and you go, you go, you take this to the flip side also, can somebody be too good? There was a person by the name of Dr. Kravinsky. He made, uh, he was a multimillionaire in commercial real estate, and afterwards he realized that in order to reach the highest fulfillment of life, he has to be a giver. So he gave away all his money. Like literally, his his family was was like you know, living like paupers, and uh, and then he says, you know what, I have to give more. And he went and he found and he found somebody they could donate his kidney to, and he said, you know, if I find somebody that needs my other kidney, I'll give it that kidney also. That means that you're dead. And um, his wife, which was I believe a psychiatrist, you know, told him you're crazy, threatened divorce. I think that's where he decided to keep his kidney, or I don't know, um, or maybe that's why he wanted to give his kidney. I don't know. So. He, he, you know, like, this is going too far. Like, if you don't have, a, according to the Jewish law, you, you're allowed to help somebody, but up to a certain point. You're, you're, you're supposed to help somebody, but again, up to a certain point. So if you're dealing with just based on your morality, you could go till the end. You'll end up killing yourself, thinking that you did the best thing. Meanwhile, you're considered suicide, or you're considered a murderer, you're considered who knows what else you did. So let's go, and let's look at absolute morality in action, this, uh, and some few examples of what you would think would be right, but let's look at the Torah on what really the answer is. So... That's case number one. As Rabbi Yitzhak Finger brings us down, I believe. Case number one is you're going and you're driving down the highway and you see two cars pulled over. Both are very much in need of assistance. And you look at one of them, your best friend. The other one, your mortal enemy, like your nemesis. Like you see him and you know, you gotta start picking drug bills. You're gonna be like, oh, this guy, you know, like, oh, that guy. So both of them need help. You go and you're looking and you're like, oh, well, of course, I'll help my friend. You know, I'm my best friend. I'm going to help him. I'm going to help my enemy. And you go and you help your friend. Now, did you do the right thing? What, according to your mind, yeah, I did, you know, I did whatever I was supposed to. I helped my, I helped my friend. Well, I have to help my enemy. So let's look at what the Torah says. The Torah says in Exodus chapter 23, verse 5, If you see the donkey of your enemy that's Lying under its burden, you gotta help, you gotta help it. Says the Gemara, the Gemara goes and explains it, and it says, let's say you see a case like this, right? You have donkeys, you have one donkey, and you have two donkeys. And you, they need help. One of them is your friend, not the donkey, the person who's in charge, or maybe, whatever. So one of them is your friend, one of them is your enemy. 
Who do you help first? Says the Torah, you go and you help your enemy first. Why? So you'll be able to subdue your, your, your evil inclination, which, which feels a little bit of satisfaction when your enemy suffers a little bit. So you're able to fix all that and also to recuperate, maybe to, to repair some damage between you and your enemy. The Torah says first you help your enemy, then you help your, then you help your friend. Let's take an example number two. Uh, let's say, assume you're traveling uh, to Afghanistan or any of the stands that have donkeys that you still use, uh, that you use, uh, you know. So, um, that, and you're going over there and you see two donkeys, uh, two different owners, two donkeys. And one owner, is, they both need help. One owner is taking off the stuff off the donkey. Another owner is putting stuff on the donkey. You want to go help, who do you help first? Do you help the person load or unload? Says the Torah. You help the, the person first unload. Why? Because the donkey is suffering. It has stuff on its back. If you're helping somebody, first help the person unload the donkey first to relieve, at least alleviate a little bit of suffering that it has its, its burden on his back. So now, that is case number two. And then you help, obviously, if you have time, you help the guy to, to load. Case number three. Now we're going to combine those two cases together. Say you have a friend. And your friend is, un, is, unloading, is unloading a donkey. So you have a friend that's unloading a donkey, and then you have an enemy that is loading a donkey. So I just gave you two different, I swapped those things. Because we said before, first you, felt you help the enemy, but also first you help the donkey that's, that's suffering, that you first unload. Now we just swapped the two. So you have a friend that's unloading, an enemy that's loading. Who do you help now? Yeah, that's a good question, right? If you think about yourself, you probably pick up whatever you, you, you know, you're in the mood of to decide. But according to the Torah, you first help your, your enemy load his donkey, because it's more important in the Torah's eyes, that you help somebody else who is your enemy, that maybe you could repair some damage, maybe because you, you don't have that, you're working on your evil inclination, then to, to postpone a little bit of the, end of, the, of the animal suffering. That is more important in the Torah's eyes to help a human being rather than to help the, the, the animal. And again, I'm, you know, I'm paraphrasing that in, in a very uh, you know, particular manner. So this is, a, this is already a third case that if somebody had zero understanding in Judaism would think that everything that I said was completely the opposite of what they would have, what they would have think. Let's go to the fourth and last final case on this, in this, uh, in this topic. So, let's say you're going and you are driving down the highway and somebody, somebody's pulled over and they need help. And you go and you help them and they're like, oh, you're a Jew boy, yeah, you got the, the kippah, yeah, yeah, I see, you're very good, religious. So, um, it's your mitzvah, why don't you go do it? I need to go do some cloud watching. I think I see a dragon over there. Right? And you go and you sit over there, he sits on the grass and he starts looking over there. You're a good person, you want to help. Do you have an obligation for the Torah to help anymore? No. The Torah says, azov ta azovimo, you have to help with him together. If he sits back and he says, you're a mitzvah, you do it. No obligation to help anymore. No obligation. Obviously, you know, if there's an old man that fell on the street, and be like, I'll help you up, but you got to help yourself. Be like, I, I can't, I can't, sonny. Be like, well, <laughs> you know, it sucks for you. I'm out of here. It's not my, no, obviously you got to use your, you know, the common sense in this. But assuming he's able to help, he knows how to help, he wants to help, and he says, you're a mitzvah, you go do it. You want to load the donkey? You know what? I'm not in the mood of loading the donkey. You have a mitzvah, you go do it. You don't have an obligation uh, to, to do that anymore because the Pasuk says, Azov Tazovimo. So we see over here already, many cases, that if you don't have an absolute religion, things that you thought would be morally correct is actually the opposite. It's incorrect. When you're basing off your own mentality, when you, or when your own morality, when your own decision making, things can be so wrong. And you could go up after 120 thinking that you are the greatest person, philanthropist. You gave so much money. But in essence, you are nothing but a bad, bad person. Now, I'm not saying this is about everybody, but you don't know unless you actually look at the authoritative, authoritative figure, which is the Torah, telling you what is right and what is wrong. There are people... Um, uh, that uh, call themselves atheism, that they write books on atheism. And these books, some of them become national bestsellers.
e-commerce. Like, like you're talking about, you know, millions and millions of copies sold, translated into 31 languages. I don't know how many languages really need to learn about like atheism, but you know, it's a very, very popular uh, movement, unfortunately. So they go and one of one of very popular book, which author does not need to be named. He goes and he says that um, you know the religion is very dangerous. Look at all the murder that happened because of religion. Look at all the extremists, all the extreme religious fanatics that go and they murder people for the sake of the religion. So this is somebody who's obviously going and twisting history. Because let's look at the 20th century, just the 20th century. Look at how many people died based off the hands of atheism, atheists. And the number is over 80 million. Hitler was an atheist. Right, we have the numbers. He killed around 17 million. You also have Stalin which is also an atheist, communist. And he also killed tens of millions of people. Pol Pot, Mao, all these people combined, they killed over 80 million people that were, and their belief was atheism. How many people died for religious fanatics in the past, you know, in the 20th century? Those are right. Those are all atheism. Yeah. Communistic regimes. There's atheism. So, the atheist response, and it says, but these people, even though they're murdering, but they're not doing it in the name of atheism. How do you how do you kill for nothing? I am I'm killing you for praise no one. You know, well, you know and then they, how do you do something for no reason? There's nothing there. But in fact, if you actually think about it, I believe and I very strongly believe that atheism does atheism does play a strong role. First of all, especially if you're going base of communism. Communism is inherently an atheistic. You know, the, the per, no people has a self worth. It's everybody's together as involved. So there's what there it's it's already promoting atheism. Communism is already promoting atheism, but. If you have somebody that believes in a higher power, believes in God, whatever God he believes in, doesn't matter, and he wants to go and murder a person, he'll think for a second, okay, wait a minute, what does my religion say? Does my religion say I'm allowed to do it? I'm not allowed to do it. So then he could go and argue based on that. But if you don't believe in any religion at all, then who cares? You know, I can do whatever I want. People are not going to like me. I don't care. I have money. I got power. I don't need that. So you go with someone like Hitler or Stalin. You have all these people that they don't believe in God. They don't believe in anything else. So... By them going and by them going and murdering people, they might not do, be doing it in the name of atheism, but atheism definitely helped. They have no moral conscience. There's nothing to be. There's no. There's no reckoning. There's no something that they have to pay for at the end of at the end of their life that they say, "Why did you do this?" Because there's nothing afterwards. So in in aspect, yes, atheism. If they kill, they kill based on the rationalization, and that happens based off the fact that they don't believe in another god or any god. Furthermore, if you believe in saying, like, religion is bad because people murder in the name of religion, it's like saying medicine is bad because there are people that prescribe medication that they don't need it. Or Dr. Mengele was bad, so therefore all doctors are bad. It's like, you know, completely changing the entire, you know, whatever. It's like everything. It's like there's so many, so many wrong things wrong with that, that idea in it. Okay, so now that we have that understanding, now we have to ask, answer some questions about Judaism. Now, if we're saying that the moral authority is only based on one higher power, so then we have to answer one question that comes up quite frequently, um, and that is Amalek. If God is such an all-loving person and wants to help, what is the deal with Amalek? Amalek, we have an obligation to eradicate, erase the memory of Amalek. What is the idea with that? So, when anybody has you know, dealt, dealt with this, um, with atheism and dealing with that, or anybody who had questions, be like, well, yeah, what is with that? Why is it that we have such a hatred against Amalek? What is it a hatred? Like, what is it? So let's try to understand the, the, the purpose and the obligation for Amalek. So Rabbi Chaim Jafter goes and, and brings this down also beautifully, brings a few reasons down. Excuse me. That Hashem, well, I answer it actually in a few, a few different uh, parts of it. So you have to stick with me with this and you'll have a very, very clear understanding of Amalek afterwards. So 
Number one, we'll answer with the Briskorov. The Briskorov says that the, this, this, the destruction of Amalek is a very strictly limited ap- application. And what is that? The, let's look at, for example, when Shaul HaMelech. Shaul HaMelech went, and he was commanded by Shmuel HaNavi, the prophet, via God, to go and destroy Amalek. Now, says the Briskorov, why did God have to go and command him to destroy Amalek? Did God tell him, hey, by the way, keep tzitzit? Hey, by the way, keep Shabbat? No, we know that he has to keep Shabbat. Why, says the Briskorov, why did God specifically say, go, you have to go and, and destroy Amalek? Because that is when the, the obligation to destroy Amalek happened. When God specifically gives you, it's a very limited application, when God tells you to do it. That's when you have that application to do, uh, to destroy Amalek. Not that it's just an overall free murder society, you know, just murder anybody who you think is as Amalek. It's only very strictly limited to that, to that, uh, that particular aspect of time. The, and furthermore, even when you had the obligation to destroy Amalek, there was, it was also very limited in how you had to go with it. There were conditions that, that had to be followed. For example, you have to allow them to opportunity to repent. If they decide, for example, this is what the Kesem Mishnah brings down, if they decide that uh, they, they are going to become, a, you know, they're going to keep the seven Noahide laws, they're not Amalek anymore. They don't have obligation to kill them. They do Shabbat, they, go, they don't have to become Jewish, they don't have to convert anything, as long as they become the regular, they stay where they are, keep the seven Noahide laws, the basic morality of, of you know, society, they're good, they're no, no obligation to murder them, even back then. The, and even furthermore, when, it, when, when Jews go into war, there's, a, there's things. You never surround the, you never surround them by all four sides an enemy. Always leave them one room to escape. You always, and if they, if they go and they, and they, um, uh, forfeit, whatever the, you know, the white flag, the forfeit, that, you know, you have to go and accept them. They want to do repentance. They, there's no, there's no, there's all these different applications that are related to it. But still, what was so bad about Amalek? What was so bad that really, uh, had Amalek? That's what, Egyptians, we don't have the obligations. Only Amalek. Why Amalek? So Ramban, Nachmanides, offers two answers. This is based off Shemot, Exodus, chapter 17, verse 16. He says that Amalek, he was the first, the first nation to attack us after the Exodus of Mitzrayim. So when we got out of Egypt, we were known as this is God's chosen nation. Like everybody knew, like it was all miraculous. The ten plagues, the whole thing, the splitting of the sea, the Matantua, everything was like on the highest thing. You knew that this nation represented God. Like this was a known fact. And um, all of a sudden, so everyone was like, you know, like, all right, back off. You know, like, wherever they're going. I mean, they were traveling, we're traveling in the desert. It wasn't like we're, you know, roaming in the people's lands. And then comes Amalek, comes out of their way, and goes and attacks the Jewish people. Now, why did they go attack the Jewish people? Were they threatened by it? No. They didn't. They were doing one thing and one thing only. They weren't going to attack specifically the Jewish people. They were attacking God. They were attacking the whole aspect of God. And we'll see what Amalek stands for. And they were attacking it. That's where we draw the line. It says... You're fighting me because of this. You're threatening that something else. But when you're completely a fighting against good, you're like pure evil fight. You know, the, imagine this. You have a refugee camp, a refugee family that goes and, and is able to escape finally from their, their Tahars. And they're traveling for like months, years in the desert. And finally they reach civilization. And then they go and they, and they, go and they, and they murder and they, and they destroy and they uh, um, you know, kill the entire refugee family. They're pure evil. They were just, you know, they're refugees. It just came out. This is how you treat them? And in fact, the... Um, you know, the, the Gemara and the Midrash say that Amalek, what they did for the, to the Jewish people, for the men, is that they raped, castrated, and murdered the Jewish men. It wasn't just like, oh, hey, let's fight, you know, yeah, let's get our swords. You know, it was, it was, they were brutally murdering people for absolutely no reason other than pure evil. They wanted to fight against God. Furthermore, the, the Ahmadi goes on, and he says that Amalek was, you know, they, they were descended from Esav. We're descended from Yaakov. We're both descended from Yitzhak Avinu. It says we're related. Is that you treat family? 
So you treat family? Right, let's go back to that. This is how you treat family. At least family is supposed to treat something. Brutally murder them for absolutely no reason. So, Ramosha Salavecha goes, and he says, Amalek, to understand Amalek, it's more a concept than a nation. It's, and in fact, he goes and he says that anybody who expresses baseless hatred for the Jewish people can be regarded as Amalek. And that's why he regarded, for example, the Nazis as Amalek. Because they were just completely baseless hatred. Now, it doesn't mean that anybody who hates baselessly the Jews, you have an obligation to murder them. It's a concept. This is a concept that, that uh, there is of, of Amalek. The, and this is the idea. When, when you start looking at, at Amalek, you know, people say, well, Amalek, genocide. The Jews were practicing genocide also. So this is a problem when people go and they try, they think they learn, they learn how to, no, absolutely not. But they think that they, they, they read the, some verses in Torah. They, they don't use the oral law. They don't understand anything they're talking about. And they're like, oh, look at this. This is terrible. Look what they did. You have to understand the full concept of what, of what it's entailing. The, the, you know, Rambam, Maimonides, in the Guide to Perplex goes, and he says, you know, the, the command to wipe out Amalek, is not based on hatred. It's not based on anything else. It's actually, it's removing the Amalek-like behavior from the world. We're supposed to be a light unto the nations. We're supposed to, and if it's through education, if it's through, uh, you know, moral influence, whatever it is, that is eradicating and removing Amalek from the, from the world. The idea with Amalek is They happen to come to you on the road. What does that mean? Because Amalek's understanding is everything is luck. The Jews went and the Jews had such miracles in the Exodus and they had so much stuff happening to them. You know what Amalek said? No, no, no. It happened to be in the right place at the right time. Everything just happened to be happened to happen to happen. No believe in God. It's just, it's all just pure luck. Anything, the, the idea of eradicating Amalek is eradicating that style of behavior. And that's what we're, we're trying to eradicate, not only from the outside world, but also from ourselves. Eradicating the behavior that there's no higher power. There is a higher power, and that is God, and it's very, very evident that we've been seeing it in the past, uh, you know, few classes that we've been going on. So that is, the idea of Amalek is to remove the doubt. To think of it as just a brutally genocide, chasu shalom, you know? The, the, the Nazis, then the people, there are people that compare, um, the way that Jews treated Amalek to Nazis treated the Jews. I'm like, are you kidding me? Did the Nazis say, like, hey guys, if you, you're good people, you guys are gonna go? Did they go and they just murdered the Jews for no, for, I'm sorry, the murder of the Amalek for no reason? Everything was a very, very particular instant. If somebody's coming to murder you, yeah, what are you gonna do? You know, you gotta fight war. It's time to, it's time to battle. And by the way, all this is only when we had a higher power going and telling God, specifically saying to them, go and destroy Amalek. Go and fight against Amalek. It's, I'm not talking about now, like, well, God, I should, I should kill who? Everybody of what? You know, like, that, that is, you know, that's, I mean, you're talking about time when we had prophets and it was, a, it was, a, it was a known thing that there, there was communication from God. Completely different thing. This is a very, very, this, by the way, there's a class, this, I can make a class in itself on how much, but I just wanted to touch on the subject that, you know, the, the morality is, in Judaism, is something that comes from a higher power, that comes directly from God, that is particular in how it, how it works. And not only that, it says if you really want to be a good person, there's only one way to do it. You cannot decide for yourself, because we said many, many times already in this entire class, there is no way that you can decide and you can know what's right and what's wrong based on your own perception and your own understanding. Because a thousand years from now, a thousand years from beforehand, it's all completely false and wrong. So, Judaism, we have something called the Torah. And the Torah is a book that was divinely brought down by God to the Jewish people, and there is there, there are only subjective opinions that can be labeled as good and evil. You have a, you have a, you have, think of it this way, you have a moral authority that transcends humans. That's something that's above and beyond. You have this in, in for example, Malachi, chapter 3, verse 6. It says, Ki ani Hashem lo I am God that I have not changed. Which means that God doesn't change over time. Morality changes over time. Humans change over time. The world evolves over time. Everything changes. Everything evolves. Everything, you know, especially if you deal with evolution, everything changes over time. 
One thing doesn't change. And that's God and that's the Torah. That is something that stays forever. You want to know something that you can trust and you can sit there and you can know that this is going to be good from the, from the beginning of creation to the end of creation and that is the Torah. And if you really want to know who is a good person, ask yourself this question. Imagine you're traveling and you need a ride. You need, you're, you're trying to hitch a ride and you're in a desert. Whatever it is, there's like, there's two options of cars coming back by you. There's one, you know, nice, secular, atheistic philosopher, you know, wealthy, doesn't matter, whatever he is, a very well-to-do guy, does a lot of good stuff, but doesn't believe in God. And he's traveling in one car. That's one option you have. The other option that you have is you have a religious person. A ver- doesn't matter whatever religion. Right? Any religion, they believe in God, they believe all the good stuff that you're supposed to do, you're supposed to listen to God, you're supposed to help people in need, and um, these two people are traveling. And you have one choice, who are you going to pick? Who are you going to pick that you want, you want the devoutly religious person who always wants to do good, or you want somebody based on his own atheistic morality to decide what is good and what is right? Eh, he's going to take up my air conditioning, I'm going to have to chat with him, I'm not interested in that, I'm going to go. You see a good, per, you know, good you know, religious devout person, who would you choose? And if you think about that, not so deep, you don't even have to think so deep. You already have an answer. If that answer is more, more often than not will come up as a religious person, even if you're not religious. Now why? Why is it that you would rather go with somebody who's religious than somebody who's secular and not? Because you know that deep down there's something there. There is something there. And I'm not saying any, it could be a fake religion. Any religion. But if you have a higher power that you believe you have to do something, that's going to push you to do more, more, more better things than if you don't believe in God and you can do whatever it is that you want. Let's finish off with, with a final thought of, of, you know, his, you know, religion. Is it good? So, the, uh, there was a study done by Dr. Ariel Knafo in Ben-Gurion University that he studied 20 government schools, religious and secular. And he found out that religious schools were less likely to use drugs than secular schools. And then Columbia University National Center of Addiction and Substance Abuse also saw that people, the teenagers, that were more religiously you know, engaged in religion, they were less likely to use drugs. The, you know, the, in March 1976, then-commissioner Jerome Hornblass the new, of the New York City Addiction Service, Services Agency, he, he made an interesting data about, regarding Jews. He says, Jews with a strong commitment to their religion had very low rates of, excuse me, of alcoholism. But among irreligious or assimilated Jews, the rates have become the same. So why is it that the secular world versus the religious world, you have the rates of abuse, and I'm not saying right now, unfortunately, it's climbing in all angles, but still, the rates of abuse is higher in the secular, atheistic world versus in the more religious world. Why? Why is it that people are abusing more in one, in one angle more than the other? So, when you look at... Um, religion in general. You look at, for example, a city in Israel called Bnei Brak. Bnei Brak has something very interesting, that it has the, um, the, the highest average life expectancy in Israel is in Bnei Brak. Now, if you've ever been to Bnei Brak, you would think, okay, well, it, you know, it must be like a very, very high end to do, a lot of exercise, gym in every corner, you know, healthy food stores in every corner. It is one of the poorest, most congested cities in Israel. And there is fat food, fat food, not fat free, fat food, on every corner, people smoking like chimneys, you know, in all places over there. It's not, so why is it that they're living in high expectant life, uh, you know, they have a, they have a longer life expectancy? The, this, I'm going to share with you three studies. Duke University, they made a study that showed that people who attend religious service once a week, specifically just once a week, are half as likely to have elevated blood levels of interleukin-6, which is associated with some cancers and heart disease. Just, you know, just by attending once a week. One California, and I'm not saying that because you intend to there, that's a hard, it, there's obviously, I'm talking about benefits right now, I'm not talking about benefits in the next world, I'm talking about benefits of being religious in this world. 
And this is secular studies. And by the way, this is not only Judaism, it's any, any, any religion. One California study conducted over 28 years was published in 1997, found that those that attend religious services weekly had a one-third lower de- uh, death rate. In ni- third uh, study, in 1995, Dartmouth Medical School, they studied 232 patients that were recovering from open-heart surgery. People that were recovering, that had a strong community support reinforced by strong religious beliefs, were 14 times as likely to survive than the other ones. How do you explain that? How do you explain that somebody that having a... Now, I'm not saying that there's spiritual powers in the, in the religion. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about right here, right now. What do you, how is it that you're going and you're practicing any religion that automatically you have a higher, a higher ability to survive? One of the reasons is, is that you're able to deal... You don't sweat the small stuff. When you feel like there's a God there, your stress level goes down. Everything, you become a healthier person. You become a healthier person. There was a guy by the name of Dan Boutonnerre. He was an American explorer. He went to, did an extensive study on longevity. He wanted to see how come some people in different parts of the world, they live long life. So he visited four locations around the world that he termed blue zones. These are, are reportedly places that have very, very long life expectancies and the, the fewest geri- uh, geriatric diseases. He found three factors over here. Amongst uh, like uh, all four of them, he found three very common things. Number one, every single one of them had a purpose in life. There was something that, that they, you know, they have found, had meaning and fulfillment to doing. Number two, they had a remarkably strong focus on relationships. And number three, they all kept a form of Sabbath, of like a, a sanctuary time. Interesting, all these three things is what is commanded through the, through the Torah by, the, by Judaism. If you believe in the Torah, if you believe and you follow it, you live life over here. Over here in this world is already a better, is already a better world for you. You live longer, you're healthier, you're able to do that. And I'm not even talking about any spiritual benefit. I'm not even talking about the spiritual benefit on the physical world. I'm talking about the physical benefit with the physical attribution just based on your belief and your thinking that there is a higher power. The, if you think about it, throughout your life, you have more good days and more bad days. Generally, more bad days. I mean, how many days can you win the lottery, right? How many days, uh, the, you know, even if, if, even if it's just an average day, if like you just cruise through the day, like you didn't do anything, that already, is that considered a good day? You don't consider that a good day. It's a, whatever, it's a regular day. You know, it's just like passing through. And in fact, it makes it even worse when you think about all the goals that you didn't achieve yet. I didn't get married, I didn't make my money, I didn't go this, I didn't, you know, I have no kids. Whatever it is, any goals that you want that you didn't achieve, it already goes down. But what happens if you stop for a second, you're like, well, listen, God has a plan and there's a purpose for that plan. And if I didn't do that yet, then there must be a reason for it. So all of a sudden you're like, all right, you can enjoy life a little bit more. You're a little bit happier. You're a little, you're able to deal with stuff much better. And if you're able, we know one of the biggest, one of the biggest stuff that makes you sick and, and brings you down emotionally and physically is stress, stress levels. Mm-hmm. Being religious, real religious, real, you know, following Judaism the way you're supposed to, your stress goes down. How are you going to stress this stuff? Come on, why are you going to stress it? God's great. God's awesome. You know, I love you, baby. All right, you know, like God's great. You know, you, you stub your toe, you'd be like, thank God. Boch Hashem, right? Instead of saying, beep. So, the, and, and then you think about, okay, but listen, it's a big life-changing thing to become religious. It's a big life-changing thing. What are you changing already? Now, like, granted, if you're coming from completely secular to completely religious thing, you do have to make some changes, right? Kosher and that. But when you break it down, like, what is it? So you can't have a cheeseburger anymore? Oh, no. So you're going to live a little bit longer. You're not going to have a heart attack earlier. I'm so sorry. All right? Don't worry about it. We'll give you some fried food. We'll, we'll fix that. Um, the, what, 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 already is that you dealing, what already is it that you can Oh, so you can't text on Shabbat. You can't watch a movie on Shabbat. What is going to be with that? Oh, my God. 25 hours without TV. Oh, my God. How could there be a God in the world? What am I supposed to do with my life? Am I supposed to have my own thoughts, God forbid? And, you know, no one wants to deal with themselves. So... You think about it, you break everything down in religion that makes you religious, 
what is already changing? How much is already changing? So you got to pray three times a day? All right, so you take you know, 45 minutes for Shachit, another 50 minutes for Micha, another 50 minutes for Alvit. You have an hour and 15 minutes a day praying. You got to learn a little bit. You enjoy it. Come on, learning is fun. No, you guys enjoy it when you come over here, right? It's good stuff. I think so, huh? I hope so. So uh, you go It's you, you go and you start enjoying it. Shabbat dinner, so you have family meal time, you have good food. Oh, God forbid that I should hurt you with some good food. Here's some good chicken soup. Oh, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me from, you know, here's some potato cocoa, right? Here's some chamim. Here's some, oh, you know, what is so bad already about it? How much do you have to change? So you have to dress modestly. Oh, okay, so guys are not going to be staring at you. Oh, okay, well, you know what? If you really break it down, if you really break it down. Now, again, it's it's changing. In the beginning, it's difficult. It is difficult. I'm not going to say it's not. Right? You have to wear tzitzit. Oh, my God. You know, sweating in the summer. I know. It's different. It's one of the hardest meets for to do. Um, you have a kippah. What do you do if it's windy? And you want to, you know, obviously, you know, life-changing, uh, altering, uh, you know, things. But that's a joke. I'm being sarcastic. So um, the when you, when, you really, when you really break things down, your life is not changing that much. Your life is not changing that much. In the, in the negative aspect, but positive aspect, I guarantee you, I've asked this to every single person that became religious. Now, I'm not telling people that were like, you know, dabbling in the waters. Yeah, I'll keep kosher when I'm outside or home or whatever it is that they decide. Or I'll keep Shabbat when people look at me. You know, I'm talking about somebody that actually went and became religious. 100% of the time, I asked them, are you happier now or are you happier than you were before? Not once. Not once. And I've asked this to every single, almost every single person I met. Are you happier? I think I've asked it to a few people around over here on the, on the table. Are you happier now or are you, are you, are you less happier now? And I've never, ever, ever received a response. I don't know. You know, it's kind of difficult. I'm thinking about going back the other way. No, you ask them, are you happier? Are you better off right now? It's like a hundred percent. I feel better. That might be difficult. I might slip sometimes. I might mess up. But with my decision right now, I'm definitely a happier, a happier person in this world. I'm not talking about the next world. Right here, right now, you're already enjoying it. So you think about religion and you think about, oh wow, it's so difficult and so much you have to do. Really? Is it? Break it down for a second in your mind. Stop and think about a second. I guarantee you, your benefits are going to be much greater in this world and it's going to be in the next world. Besides the fact that you're going to have, you know, your relationships are going to be more solidified. You're going to have a stronger understanding of, of, you know, peace, internal peace. You're going to have different, you know, you're going to, instead of going and, and watching nonsense nonstop at home, you're going to be, you know, stimulating your brain. You're going to make yourself smarter. You're going to be able to be better in business. You're going to be able to be better as a relationship. You're going to be a better person. Everything, you're going to be a happier person. Better people are happier people. People that do for others are happier. So then, my final question is, is that, is it really that difficult to be Jewish? And is it really that difficult to be religious? And if it isn't, then you want to know the answer that we started off with. Is it possible to be a good person without being religious? Depending who you ask. Depending who you ask, you ask anybody with a moral compass and an understanding saying that if I'm basing off your good deeds based on what I think is good, then you're a good person to me and to me only. And I ask you the same person to the Islamic person, you know, um, you ask him and he's going to say that you're a bad person. Because you're not following this. But, and this is all going to be subjective. It's all going to be depending, you know, based on whoever you ask. But if you go and you follow one divine book, one divine power, one authority that says exactly what is good and what is bad, then you know what is good and what is bad. You don't have to go and start asking people, am I a good person or not? You know. You're following the Torah. You want to know if you ask a person, what good did you do today? I prayed today. I made a blessing over food. I thank God for stuff today. You know, I did things. I did things for others. I was able to, I went to, I went to the synagogue and someone asked me charity. I smiled at him and I gave him a dollar. You know, you did something good. What can you say for an atheist person? I'm not saying atheist people are not, are not good people. They can do plenty of good things. But you ask them, what was the last good thing that you did? I dare you. Go try it. Good luck in that. Any questions? No questions? No question. You said that Jews, there's a lot of people not allowed to surround the city. Mm-hmm. If we're attacking it, they're 
Was it a story of when they surrounded the city? You're talking about Yeshua? Yeah. When they went, they, they circled the city to bring down the walls. Any any time, if let's say the city like you know gives up and they say, listen, we'll accept the seven Noahide laws or whatever it is, we don't want to fight you anymore. Whatever it is, I think the 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 you know the, we're not allowed to fight them. Uh-huh. It's like kryptonite. Oh, oh no, seven Noahide laws. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Ah, oh, you're gonna be a good person. All right, all right. We make a chayim and have some herring. All right. Any other questions? No other questions. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.